you are second grade or younger and you haven't made your way to Children's Church, you can do that now. Or if you are teaching, you can do that now. Love it. Second grade and younger can head on down, and if you're third to seventh grade and you haven't gotten your treasure seeker binder, that's in the back for you, at the back shelf there. Go ahead and get that. Let's pray. Father, I'm still humming it. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song will ever be. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is the Savior's love for me, for us. And Father, we want to transpose that up one more key for the purposes of this sermon and to see how marvelous and how wonderful is your love for your glory. And Father, your love for your Son. Lord Jesus, your love for your Father and for the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would help us to be swept up into God this morning as we look at Isaiah and look at John and to see what they might tell us about intra-Trinitarian love. Father, we need your help. These are uh, heady things, and I, I pray that you would help us to Uh, Not just think of them with our heads, but to sing them with our hearts and with our lives. Come now and teach us from the scriptures what you are like. And we will be grateful for it in Jesus' name. Amen. On June 13th, 1678, a man named Henry Skugel died. Tuberculosis took him at age 27, but not before he had the opportunity to write a book entitled The Life of God in the Soul of Man. About a hundred years later, this little book, and it is a little book, was put in the hands of George Whitfield by Charles Wesley. Whitfield read it. And in his own words, understood for the first time what true religion was. And he proceeded to set fire to England and to this nation of ours in the Great Awakening. Like many men and women throughout church history, Henry Skugel's very brief life was disproportionate to his impact. It was a brief life. And the only real reason we know about this man today is because of the book that sent shockwaves into the soul of Whitfield and and others who were preachers during the First Great Awakening. Um, In this book, I I read a sentence that seemed to me just self-evidently true the moment I read it. I once heard that books don't change people. Paragraphs do. Sentences do. And here's the sentence. It's on your your outline. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Another way to say that is we become like what we worship. 
Whatever you give your mind and your heart and your mouth and your time and your money and your life to, at greatest proportion, is your God. So, what's the worth and excellency of your soul? If you had to be really honest about it. Schugel's point is that when God in Christ is the object of your greatest love, the worth and excellency of your soul is infinitely valuable. It's also true that when the object of your greatest love is something other than God, the worth and excellence of your soul shrinks and it shrivels. So the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Based on that big idea, I want to state the premise that we established last week, and it's quite simple. Here's the premise. God is love. God is love. 1 John 4.8, 1 John 4.16, both bear witness to this truth. God is love. We also learned in last week's text a little bit about this love. Exodus 34, verses 5 to 8, we learned that God's love, to begin with, is outrageously merciful. God's love is also utterly just. And God's love is worthy of a, it's worthy of a sermon series. It's worthy of all our understanding and our adoration and our action. So the big idea last week was... All you need is love is not exactly true. All you need is God. He is love to you. That's the premise we begin with today. And the truth that God is love is implicit, if not explicit, on every page of the Bible. God is love. But have you ever stopped to ask the question, what's God's greatest object of love? What is God's greatest object of love? Now, if your heart is thinking right now, me, then on this point, you are more American than you are Christian. Don't hear me saying automatically you're not a Christian, if you believe that. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that you're a very Western one. You're a very American one. You and I, as important as we are, are not, in point of fact, God's greatest object of love. The greatest object of God's love, the utmost and the highest and the supreme and chief love of God, is God. Some wonder how this can be. And the short answer to that question is found if we just follow it with another question. What's the worth and excellency of God? The answer here is evident. The worth and excellency of God is infinite. God's worth is immeasurable. It's boundless. It's never-ending. He's the most worthy and excellent being in all of existence. And the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. What's the worth and excellency of God? Inestimable. Priceless. So God's greatest object of love is God. It stands to reason. Now that's just philosophical theology. 
I think the logic is airtight, but you're not obligated to believe that, unless I can prove that in the Bible, which is exactly what I intend to do. If you haven't already, would you please open a Bible to the prophet Isaiah this morning? Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 48. It's the text that Dan read for us a few minutes ago. Isaiah 48, and we're going to zero in on verses 9 to 11. It's page 609 in the Red Bibles, if you wanted to follow along there. Page 609 in the Red Bibles. Isaiah 48, verses 9 to 11. Listen now to the words of the Lord himself in Isaiah 48, beginning in verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Here's the first point today. Our one God of love loves himself supremely. Our one God of love loves himself supremely. The context for these three verses, 9, 10, and 11 in Isaiah 48, is a prophecy about the Babylonian exile. Isaiah was likely writing somewhere around 700s B.C. This would have been about 150 years before Israel was actually taken away for 70 years of captivity. God is going to discipline his people because although he's given a pledge of love to them and has shown mercy to them, they have constantly kicked him to the curb in favor of the gods of the surrounding nations. And instead of utterly wiping them out, God is going to discipline them for 70 years as they get carted off to Babylon. And it's so sure to happen that God speaks of it as if it's already happened in the past tense. You see that in verse 10. I have refined you. I have tried you. The people of Israel have not loved God as they said that they would. And yet he refuses to unload his righteous wrath on them. Why? Why does he defer his anger? To use the language of verse 9. Why does he restrain his anger that he may not cut them off? The answer again is in verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. Verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane, my glory I will not give to another. One of my favorite pastors once said, people are typically happy for God, for, to be God-centered as long as God is man-centered. Here's a newsflash for our culture. God is not man-centered. He's not. God is God-centered. According to Isaiah 48, verses 9 to 11, God loves God and has a wonderful plan for God's life and glory. That his glory be known and praised and cherished and enjoyed and proclaimed forever. 
And Isaiah 48 is not an isolated text. This is the drumbeat of the Holy Bible. Ephesians 1.6 says that God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy to the praise of his glorious grace. Isaiah 43, verse 7, God says of all of the inhabitants of the earth, I created them for my glory, whom I formed and made. When the author of Psalm 106 reflects on the reason for the exodus that the nation of Israel experienced out of Egypt, the author of Psalm 106, verse 8 says, He saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. In Ezekiel 36, verse 22, when God tells Israel he's about to bring them back from Babylon to his own, their own land, he says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday, he's reflecting on his gruesome suffering and death that he's about to undergo. And in John 12, verses 27 to 28, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And not just Jesus, but all of us who follow him are expected to live and die for God's sake. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And One day Jesus Christ is coming back. He's going to return to this earth personally, visibly, bodily. And 2 Thessalonians 1.10 speaks of that day when he comes to be glorified in his saints. That's why he's coming back. To be marveled at among all who have believed. And finally, in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 23, it tells us that we will have no need of the sun in the new heaven and new earth. We won't need the sun because the glory of God will give its light. Romans eleven thirty six sums it all up. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. The first of the Ten Commandments commands us to have no other gods before God. All we're really saying with this first point is that God doesn't either. God's not an idolater. God has no gods before God. The worth of an, and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. God's worth and excellency is infinite. The greatest object of his love is God. God loves himself supremely. Now, if that's all we had to say this morning, it might not break your brain. Um, that God loves you more than he, or rather loves himself more than he loves you and loves me, does not break our brains. It breaks our pride, but it's not difficult to understand. Point two might break our brains. Point two. Our one God of love exists in a loving unity of three equally divine persons. Our one God of love exists in a loving unity 
of three equally divine persons. I took the wording from this point almost word for word from the first article of the Free Church Statement of Faith. God exists in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John 3.35, John 5.19-20, John 17.24, they all affirm that the Father loves the Son. God the Father loves God the Son. Why? What's the reason that the Bible gives for the Father's love for the Son? Well, in John 3.35, it says that part of the evidence for the Father's love for the Son is that he shows him all that he himself is doing. Or in John 5.20, it says, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. He's given all things into his hand. John 10.17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. In other words, the impulse of God's heart is a loving impulse to save people. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But it's important to recognize that the son didn't give himself against his own will. The son laid down his life because he wanted to. The son knew the plan of the father from all eternity and gave his life willingly. And I think it's the willingness to obey, if I'm understanding those texts right. It's the willingness to obey on the part of the son that was the source of such great delight in the father. Think about yourself as a parent, if you're a parent. The delight that comes to your heart when your son or daughter obeys. For this reason, the father loves the son. And not only that, but we can turn it around. The son loves the father. The son loves the father. John 14, 31 Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Interestingly, this is the only place in the entire Bible where we learn explicitly that the Son loves the Father. It's the only verse. Now, you see it just about everywhere that the Son loves the Father, but this is the only place in black and white that we read it. And how does Jesus say that that love is evidenced? He says, because I do as the Father has commanded me. Jesus himself says, if we love him, we'll obey his commandments. Same thing is true with him and his Father. We know that the Son loves the Father because the Son obeyed the Father. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now let's go one more step out here. How do we know that the Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son? What about that? I believe he does, but how do we know? Are we ever told that the Holy Spirit loves the Son and the Father? No, but we're shown it, I think. John 14, 26, Jesus says about the Spirit, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your mind all that I have said to you. Why would the Spirit do that? Because he loves the Son. And he loves the Father. 
John 16, 14 makes it even clearer. He, the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what's mine and declare it to you. Think about it um, relationally here. Why, Why does one person on earth ever glorify another person? For what purpose do we do that? And what does it mean to glorify another person? It means to draw attention to them. It means to stand in the back of the auditorium like a spotlight and to highlight the one that's standing on the stage so that person or those people can be heard and seen and esteemed and applauded. When was the last time you applauded a spotlight operator at a play? Right? And yet, that the Holy Spirit equally divine, equally worthy of our worship, would do this? What else can you call that? But love. Holy Spirit loves the Father, loves the Son. It's pure love. Now the last step is that the Father and the Son love the Holy Spirit. I think they love him for this selfless spotlight ministry that he has. They esteem him as God in his own right, co-equal, as a member of the Trinity. He's the comforter, the advocate, the counselor. That's their words, not his. The Father and the Son love the Spirit for it. So our one God loves himself supremely. And our one God of love exists in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They love one another with a love that is so broad and long and high and deep, it is simply without parallel in the universe. So, where does that leave us? Remember us? You almost forget about us, right? When you read texts like this, I think that's the point. But God is love. The worth and excellency of his soul is to be measured by the object of its love. And God's soul is infinitely worthy and he loves himself supremely. But, one last point today. God's love for God doesn't threaten his love for us. It's the foundation for it. God's love for God doesn't threaten his love for us. It is the foundation for it. Listen to Jesus' final statement in his high priestly prayer. John 17. John 17, verse 26. God the Son prays to God the Father. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you loved me, may be in them and I in them. I hope you heard that. I'll read it again. John, uh, Jesus says to his Father in John 17, 26, I made known to them your name. I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What does that mean? means that God's love for God 
doesn't threaten his love for us. It's the foundation for it. In 1 John 4, 7, the apostle John says, Love is from God. At the beginning of his gospel, John writes in John 1.16, From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, God loves himself supremely. His passion for the glory of his name is incomparable. It's unequaled. And from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. In other words, God is not a narcissist. He doesn't crave our attention. He doesn't need it. The worth and the excellency of his soul is what we crave. We need him. And God's love for God as we think about him and God's intra-Trinitarian love is not a selfish, greedy, stingy, miserly kind of love that won't share. Rather, God's love is a self-giving Generous, lavish, large-hearted, open-handed love. God, I was researching volcanoes this morning. God is a Vesuvius of love. He's a Krakatoa of love. And he explodes over into us with mercy and grace and patience and forgiveness To change the metaphor, God's an ocean of love filled to the brim and spilling over onto his creation. God's love for God doesn't threaten his love for us. It's the foundation for it. Think about it this way. If the father didn't love the son, he wouldn't commit everything into his hands. If the son didn't love the father... He would never have gone to the cross, ever. But the Father does love the Son, and the Son does love the Father. And if the Holy Spirit didn't love the Father or the Son or experience love from them, he wouldn't pour God's love into our hearts, like Romans 5.5 says. Love is from God. And Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love for God doesn't threaten his love for us. It's the foundation for it. So the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Our one God of love is not an idolater. He loves himself supremely. And yet it's trickier than that because our, love, our God is a trinity and the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit is folded into that love. It's an intra-Trinitarian love. And because of that, God's love for God doesn't threaten his love for us at all. It is the foundation for it. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us sent his son into the world to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice on the cross for our sins. So as we consider God's love for us over this next season, 
it's important to stop here probably first and to know that God's love for us is not designed to make much of us. Its aim is to free us from ourselves that we might make much of him forever. Next week, we're going to consider every command of God as a legislation of love. The Old Testament has law in it. Do this, don't do that. And Jesus says in the New Testament, all of it, every command of God is about love. And we'll pick it up next week. Let's pray. Father, we so need our eyes opened to the greatest, most supreme object of love in the universe, outside of the universe, that created the universe. And that's you, O oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God, you have no gods beside you. Your glory you will not give to another. Your allegiance and your love for your fame, it is what makes possible the sending of the Son. It makes the cross possible. It makes forgiveness a reality for us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that we would be a church that would contemplate with great delight your delight in being God. Thank you, Lord, that the worth and excellency of your soul is infinite. And your desire to uphold your name is without parallel. Lord, may we be a church that finds our greatest delight in proclaiming who you are. For you are love. In Jesus' name, amen.